you guys. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the gift of this day, the gift of this moment, and the truth of those words. Thank you that as we walk into this room, we don't have to wonder about how to figure out what it means to love, what is, what is love, we're, we're wired for love, but we don't have to wonder about those things because love has a name, love has a face, it's Jesus. If we ever question, and if we question this morning, walking into this room, are we loved, either because of our circumstances or the things uh, that we have done that have that led to things kind of spiraling in a direction that we, that we wish it hadn't, we don't have to question whether we are loved because Jesus came. You came and you lived and you loved and you died and you rose again, defeating sin and death to prove your love for us. I pray that whatever we do, whatever we say, wherever we go, would be guided by that truth. So I pray today as we come to your word, I pray your word would change our hearts and our hearts would be changed for your service, not just inside this room, but outside of it as well. And I pray this in the powerful and redemptive name of Jesus. Amen. Can be seated. Well, hello. Oh, thanks. That was really nice. The uh, gr- greetings to, to the men and women in in Thirty Third. Um, it's an honor uh, to be with you uh, in, in in person most weeks, uh, but to be joining you um, today as well. And for our friends at Waterford, Happy New Year uh, to you. I heard that. Uh, Gary did an incredible job uh, kicking off the series um, last week, and uh, and we did a lot of our preparation together, so I'm trusting uh, that what I say today will complement what he he said last week, Um, but if there are things where you're like, I don't know if I heard that, you probably didn't, and that's all right, uh, because it'll be close enough. Last week, uh, we, we kicked off uh, this New Year's series uh, on, on vices and virtues, zooming in on our lives and looking at how our actions and our words and our decisions take us places. When we do things uh, that, are, that are good and honoring and, and, and pure and beautiful, that takes us place where the natural consequences of that um, reflect, uh, are, are reflected in those actions. And when we do things um, that, are, that are lazy, that are deceptive, that are... Um, that, that, are, that are impure, that are unholy, that also takes us places. We end up somewhere in life, in part through the decisions uh, that we make. And so we're talking about how do, we, how do we look at the things we ought not to do and the things we ought to do and, and, and bend our behaviors, live um, our lives in a way that, that ushers in the kingdom of God in a way that is more uh, holistic and beautiful and credible uh, to the world. It is important to recognize that in this series, it is not a self-help series. It is not about being the best version of ourselves, though when we do good, we we live in the natural consequences of that, and when we do evil, we live in the natural consequences of that. There is more to this story than just our behaviors. It is who we're becoming, it is how we are being transformed. Our hope is that we won't simply do better as a result of our time together, but that we'll have a better picture of the kingdom of God lived out through our everyday lives, and the hope that that can bring to the world around us. In this first couple of weeks, we're talking about sloth and diligence. If you're here last week, we talked, we, uh, we talked about sloth. Uh, the basic message uh, uh, of sloth is don't be lazy. Um, but we talked about how really, like most of us don't want to be lazy. 
There's things uh, that, that rob us of the energy um, to, to, to live the life that we want to live, and, and it's either lack of vision or lack of rest, and when we don't have a vision uh, for what good we can do in the world, and if we, and if we, if we don't have the rest and, re and honor the, re the limits uh, that were placed on us as created beings, they, then we slip into patterns of, of slothfulness. And sloth doesn't equal rest. It doesn't add to our rest. It robs us of it. We remembered that diligence, though it may be the opposite of sloth, is not the antidote to sloth. Our application last week was really, the heart of it was, was recognize and honor the limits that God has given us and, and, and do so particularly in how we take a Sabbath. I almost want to ask by show of hands uh, who, who took a Sabbath this week, uh, but I'm scared to because uh, I, I feel like it would be one person. I'm like, oh, why? All of you should do it. But I will say this. There are a couple of things as, as we've reflected on it, uh, as I've reflected on it, and had some conversation over the course of the week um, that, that I'll leave. If, if, if Sabbath for you is like a thing um, that, that was, that was uh, triggered in some way and you're wondering what that looks like, just a couple of, a couple of words of encouragement there. I would encourage you, uh, to not tiptoe uh, into Sabbath. Uh, it, dive in head first, go in the deep end of the pool with that. It will require adjustment, um, but, um, but we can trust that when we're obedient to God, um, he takes care of us. And so if you're like, well, I don't know how to do it, so maybe I'll just do a little bit here and there. I don't think that's a horrible thing, um, but, um, but I would encourage you, just jump in the deep end of the pool. Um, stake out Sabbath and, and build your schedule around it and see what God does with that. And then the other thing uh, that, that I learned was actually this was just kind of in, in self-reflection. Um, as I was looking at my life and looking at, at areas where I'd found pockets of sloth in my life, um, I realized that when I'm confronted with those, oftentimes my response is to show diligence in another area of life. And so if I'm being slothful, lazy, inattentive uh, in, in, in a relationship, my tendency is, is to work on fixing the feeling uh, rather than the problem. And so, uh, and so it might be easier for me to double down on productivity um, around the house or productivity at work and to show diligence in another area. So for me, um, uh, it, it was a helpful thing to recognize uh, that, you know, that, that, that good in, in one area of life, in one arena of life, doesn't cancel out negligence uh, in another. Every year uh, at, the, at the first all-staff meeting, of the year. Our entire team uh, goes to Canterbury Retreat Center, which is over in Oviedo. And it's kind of this quaint, uh, kind of dated like uh, place. If you've been there before, you know what I'm talking about. They're really sweet, and it's, but it's a, it's, a little, it's a little outdated. But it's, it's kind of centered around uh, this lake. And we, do, we go there and we do a silent retreat. We spend some time in worship. We spend some time uh, in silence. And the whole purpose of it is to consider uh, what personal holiness looks like for us for the year. What does it look like for us to have, uh, to have a, a unified, consistent approach in our lives um, to honoring God with our lives? Because it is uh, just in vocational ministry as in any other area of life, it is, it is easy sometimes uh, when things are off um, to not focus on what's off, to, but to focus on fixing uh, the feeling. And so taking a step back and looking at our lives and recognizing where there might be pockets of uh, of, uh, of things that are off um, and, uh, and, give the, and, and uh, surrender those to God and look at what does it mean um, to pursue holiness, to be consistent in all areas of our life. This week, uh, we're talking about diligence. So last week was sloth, don't be lazy. This week is diligence, uh, work hard. That's kind of the, the summary of work hard or the summary of diligence. Work hard uh, is also 
a pretty good summary of the lesson uh, that, and the example that was set for me uh, growing up in regards to work. My dad, Tom, uh, is, is one of the hardest working people um, that, I've, that I've ever met, even in retirement. Uh, he, you know, he retired a couple years ago, which I was like, what, like the hardest working person, what are you gonna do in retirement? Well, in his case, uh, when you know, he started a small business and was working at least as many hours uh, as he did in retirement, or as he did before uh, he was retired. But I remember when we moved to Florida, I was, it was just before I turned 16 and, and, uh, and, and we were just trying to like get, get stability, get a job, get stable housing, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and I distinctly remember, um, and this was an important thing for, for me as a young man, I distinctly remember on days when my dad didn't have like a viable interview for a job, he would go, even when we didn't need to, even when we still had money, he would go to the labor pool uh, and he would go and he'd dig ditches or whatever or whatever the job was for the day. Because um, for him, from his perspective, like we, we were made to, to work, to contribute, to work hard. And, uh, and that example was modeled for me all the way um, to my youngest years. My first job, uh, I wanted to, uh, I, was, I was young, I think I was 14 years old. It was a bit early uh, to, you know, to, to work legally, but in, you know, in agricultural communities, the laws uh, bend a little bit. And so I was interested in gardening. I really wanted to learn about it. So I wanted to go work at the retail plant nursery in our town. And so I go and I apply for a job and, and they're like, well, the law doesn't allow for you to work like in, in, in retail, um, but you can go work in our farm. Uh, and which is interesting, right? Children can do hard labor. Uh, that was legal, uh, but not sit in the shaded tropical wonder of a, of a retail nursery. So I had no idea what I was getting into, but I said, yes, like I wanted a job. And you said, you know, if you do this consistently and like you keep your job, you know, until you're old enough, then, uh, then you can come and work in the nursery. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll do this. And so, uh, so I show up for, for work on the first day and, uh, and this van pulls up, like the kind that movie kidnappers use uh, and also like the kind I drive. And, <laughs> and I, I show up and like, they, you know, they open the doors to this van, it has no seats or anything in the back, just that, just that like cage that catches everything so it doesn't hit the driver when the driver slams on the, bra on the back. And there's like all these guys uh, with shovels uh, who are like sitting in there. I mean, it was like, and uh, you know, for, it was my only experience with, with like work outside the home that far. So, so it didn't strike me as odd. I'm like, all right, so I get in the van. Well, so these guys, like, these are like, corn-fed, Minnesotan, like, thick neck, broad shoulders. They, they left school early so that they could work manual labor. That's how much they loved it. And, and, uh, and I get in, and I am I'm my height now, uh, and 40 pounds lighter. And so I was just like, <laughs> they didn't need to move uh, to make room for me to sit. I could just sit in between two. And, uh, and I think in retrospect, the, the driver did this on purpose, but I, I remember at one point um, he had to slam on the brakes and I was the only one who was dislodged from my seat and like smacked against the cage. So anyways, it wasn't getting off to a great start. They drive us into the middle of nowhere, um, drop us off at, at this field that was full of holes and our job uh, was, to, was to, like there, there's trees and pots and we put the trees, like the giant trees and, and, and put them in and fill the holes. And so that's great, like I, I can do that. So it goes well for about, I don't know, 10 or 15 trees. And then the guys start to grumble. And like, we don't like this. this look at all these trees we gotta do. And, and they start leaving. Like they start walking off the job. And, and, I, and this was new for me. Like 
we didn't quit. We didn't not do uh, what we said we were going to do. So I had no idea what to do. But before I knew it, I was all alone, like this lanky, like pasty white, like barely discernible from the shovel kid <laughs> who's, who's standing out there. And, and I didn't know what to do. And so, so I, ju I, I just kept working. And, uh, and I was not fast. I don't know how many, uh, how many more trees uh, I planted on my own uh, before the creepy van showed back up. Um, but I, I, I was hardwired uh, to, to, do, to do the job that I said I would do. And in fairness, I also didn't know where I was, so I didn't really have anywhere to go. <laughs> and I was like, 14, so I was like barely like last year I'd been playing in dirt for fun anyway, so it wasn't all that different than, than normal life, but 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 I stuck it out and, uh, and and the guy shows back up and I was the last person there working and it was the fastest promotion I ever got. The next the next day I was working uh, in the plant nursery and they're so impressed with there was something in what had happened in the, in, in in me owning the, the example that had been set for me um, that made a deep impact uh, on the boss and and uh, and I got to work in the nursery after that. But for me, like when we talk about work, there's a way to think of it that uh, that that can make it look like labor or toil, because uh, some work is laborious, some work is toilsome, but work at its heart. When we talk about what we were created for and, and, and what was wired into us, work at its heart is about adding value. It's about adding value through the things that we do. I remember um, that, well, and if you've been here for a long time, you know, uh, back in the day, Isaac used to talk about how when, you know, when, when they broke something as kids, his parents you know, would say, you know, what happened? And they'd be like, well, we didn't mean to. And then his parents would say, well, you didn't mean not to. Uh, and how that, like, ninja move uh, just always stopped him because you're like, you didn't really know what it meant, but there's no rebuttal for it. Um, and, uh, and, and I've discovered one uh, for, our, for our family. Our kids, um, you know, sometimes, our kids are wonderful, but sometimes there's this, like, I don't want to do that or I don't want to go there because it's not fun. Right, and the, the the less sanctified part of me um, would respond, you know, would want to respond something like, "I don't care if it's fun. Show me in the Bible where God wants says He wants you to have fun, and then I'll care about it." Or, you know, or some other completely unholy, unhelpful response. But I discovered uh, kind of the, the the judo move uh, that that thus far the kids have not found a rebuttal for. And, and when there's like the, "I don't want to go. I don't. I don't. I don't think it'll be fun." I simply say, "Fun is what you make it." Right, yeah, but like, it hasn't, I'm like, yeah, and, uh, and it's true, like, I mean, I've seen my kids, like, this summer, they were, we were, we were, uh, we were out on, uh, on this running thing, and like, it was pouring rain, it was like 42 degrees, pouring rain, I watched them stand for an hour and a half underneath the eave of this house, uh, and they had fun the entire time, they were playing I Spy, and this, that, and the other thing, and the circumstances were horrible, um, but, but fun was what they made it. I think work is much the same way. Like, we can approach work as toil, um, as labor, as an obligation, or we can approach it as an opportunity to add value. Work is what you make it. I really do believe that every job, even real cruddy jobs, and I've had some of them, can be a place where you add value. I also believe that you can add value outside of, of, of um, a job in itself, outside of a vocation. I remember early on 
in, uh, in, in the life of Summit. Like we were just like a small group meeting in an apartment and uh, uh, it was the apartment complex that Brandy and I, my sister and her husband lived in. And we invited this guy in who, we'd, who, we'd, who would regularly um, walk around the perimeter of the, of the apartment complex and we got to know him a bit. His name was Larry Steele. As we got to know him, um, he, uh, he pretty quickly let us know, and, and his, his, his disability was evident when you talked to him, um, that he had had a really bad brain infection. Um, and it left him with like a really hard time uh, connecting thoughts and keeping things straight in his head. He, was, he had near constant uh, migraines. And he said that one of the, one of the few things uh, that he can do that, that, um, that both helps in, as kind of a therapeutic activity, but also um, adds value is he can pray um, for his neighbors. And so every day he would do laps around the parking lot and he would pray uh, for each of the neighbors. And, and his, his faith was so dear and so sweet through that, through that consistent uh, discipline of prayer. And, I, and, and for me, that was a powerful lesson. And we still talk about Larry, partly because he, he has so much faith because of his prayer that he, that, that he believed uh, and, and, and is right that the Lord is the solution to every problem we might face. So if we're like, do you know a good mechanic? He'd be like, I know a good mechanic. And you'd be like, who? And he'd be like, the Lord. All right, another judo move, right? How do you respond to that? But just, but, but, but like, I saw him, like the work of, uh, uh, of his heart and the work of his mind, the work of his mouth um, was to add value through how he prayed for others. It was easy to look at him and see here's a person who can't re- like who's, who's spent, who can't do anything helpful anymore, who, can't, who, who isn't up to having a job. And yet, and yet he added more value uh, to our community and to our, to our early church family um, than, than, than we could imagine. Now, diligence is about more than just work itself. It's about the cumulative effective work, right? Diligence isn't, uh, isn't a one-time thing. A diligence calls to mind the idea of consistency. But it's not just consistency, right? Because if someone is consistently lazy, you wouldn't be like, that person is very diligent uh, at being lazy. It also, it, so, so there has to be some effort involved, but it's not just effort either. It's not just consistency. It's not just consistent effort. Like you could be a habitual bank robber, and that takes effort. I've seen the movies. You got to do a lot of planning and, and things like that. And, uh, but but no, one, no one is like, oh, Bonnie and Clyde, they're so diligent, right? There's, there, there, is, there is, when we think about diligence, there's this higher Value. There's this elevated status that comes with diligence. There's something good that happens when people are diligent. Something good in people's lives, something good for the world. It calls to mind a move toward, toward, towards, a, 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 towards completion, towards the, the accomplishment of good things. When thinking about how to define uh, diligence, re- like if, if work is adding value, what is diligence? And for me, I think the, the best working description of diligence is the idea of habitually adding value. Habitually adding value. And I think habitually is the right word because we oftentimes can think of habits as the things we don't control. We don't think about, we don't control. They just like, they just happen. We just do them. But as more and more research has been done on what makes habits, we've seen and, and, and are beginning to learn that habits like they, they are reflections of our wiring, um, but they, they can change over time. You can build through effort and through consistency, you can build habits that are different. So when we think about virtues in general, right, what we're talking about is, is living into who we're made to be, having recognizing that part of our wiring, 
um, and, and cultivating it and growing it and letting it be second nature for us, right? Like the, the virtuous people are people for whom doing good is second nature. Diligence calls to mind this idea of, of intentionally, but also habitually, reactively, kind of instinctually adding value again and again and again. I was listening to an uh, interview the other day and, uh, and, the, and the, you know, the scientist uh, was talking about how, um, how habits, like if you want to change a habit, like you want to get rid of a bad habit and replace it with a good habit, you don't just start doing the, the good thing by itself, but you pair it up with a good habit that you already do. And so, uh, and so her example was like, I want to spend two hours uh, writing in the morning. Um, and so you know, the night before, I, I put out all the things uh, that, that would make it easiest for me to write, and I, and I pair it up with, with a good habit of, uh, of whatever. And so for me, uh, the, the habit, the thing that I do every morning is, uh, is drink a cup or four of coffee. And, uh, and, and, and the thing I don't do is wake up as early as I want. And so I've started actually, rather than, rather than just setting my alarm, uh, I've been setting the, the, the coffee maker um, to have the coffee ready at the time I want to get up. The thing I'm already doing, which is drinking the hottest, freshest possible coffee, is now paired uh, with the thing that I want to do, which is wake up a bit earlier. That's actually working. I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about it. So when we talk about diligence, we can't just talk about the idea of it, but we really want to look at what, is, what does God have to say about diligence? Where, where do we see diligence modeled in the life of Jesus? Over the series, when we look at the good part, the virtuous part of, uh, of every pairing, we're going to be looking at, at Jesus uh, as our example, as our model in that. In John chapter 6, there's a real interesting, uh, there's a real interesting text because Jesus uh, didn't have a vocational job in, uh, in, in the traditional sense, at least near as we know. He was probably uh, trained as a carpenter because that's what Joseph, his, uh, his uh, earthly father, um, was vocationally. So Jesus probably knew carpentry, um, but there's nothing in, in the Gospels, in the record uh, of his ministry that, that talks about him laboring in, uh, in, uh, in, in a job in the, in the conventional sense. And... Um, and so, it, it, you know, it's possible, it was like, you know, it's possible that he was like, you know, accounts manager in the day and like ministry person at night, probably not. Uh, Uber driver, uh, you know, moonlighting as an Uber driver, uh, probably not. Although today, one of our staff people was uh, ordering Uber Eats, like ordering a, a meal, meal for a meeting on Uber Eats and, uh, and Jesus was a driver. And uh, no kidding, she got, she got a text that said, that said, please be ready, Jesus will be arriving at your front door in three minutes, right? That'll wake up. And so, but, we look, but when we look at Jesus' life, um, we see that he was, very, he was very consistent, he was very diligent, like he knew what he was up to, what he wanted to accomplish, and it was reflected in every arena of his life. At one point, a bunch of people, and this is in John chapter 6, you can read the whole thing later, but Jesus had done a bunch of teaching, a bunch of miracles. People were amazed, their bellies were full, they're following him, and they're like, and they're like show us a sign and, you know, and, and wow us and all of that. And Jesus kind of clears all the space around him and says, and says in, in verse 38, it says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, I've come down from my purpose here isn't to please you. It's not even it's not to please myself. It is to do the will of the one who sent me. With Jesus as our example of diligence, we see we see that that for him, every part of his life 
was consistent in doing the will of the Father, of the one who sent him. Last week I talked a little bit about the second law of thermodynamics, which I knew going into it, I'm not a scientist, I don't know much about thermodynamics, uh, and, and, and I'm gonna use really user-friendly terms to describe uh, the, the, this idea of entropy and how if we're, you know, if we're slothful in life, it's not just that things stay the same, it's that they actually get worse, because that's, you know, the second law of thermodynamics basically says, like, things, things don't stay the same, they get, they get worse. And I was like, oh, I hope no one comes up and is like, oh, well, actually. Uh, and, uh, and no one did on Sunday, and I was appreciative of that. And then on Monday, <laughs> someone walks into my office, and she's like, so my sister and I were talking about the second law of thermodynamics after church on Sunday. And I was like, oh, no, because I know, like, this is my coworker. She's twice as smart as I am. I have yet to, to find a topic in, in life that she's not more well-versed in. And her sister is smarter than her. Her sister is like a doctor who taught thermodynamics at a university and is now runs a research laboratory that develops nanotechnology that's used in outer space. And I'm like, I'm not going to pass the sniff test on the law of thermodynamics. And so she kind of let me know that like, you know, the laws of thermodynamics are meant to, you know, interact with each other, and like all. You know, and, but then she said, she said the the only place, the only thing in uh, in the universe that is not subject to the law of entropy, is is if it were a closed system, where there is no free or wasted energy, a closed system that 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 needs nothing and wastes nothing. And as they talked about it, as they talked about this over pizza after church, um, they, they really landed on Jesus represents the only known closed system in the universe. He needs nothing and he wastes nothing. And I thought, that's what a, what, what a beautiful picture. Because you look at Jesus' life and nothing is wasted. He is focused. He, he required nothing. He, he didn't need validation uh, from those around him. He, like, he, he didn't need anything from us. And he was true to his purpose in everything he did. So when we look at how diligence plays out in Jesus' life as our example, for me it's really helpful to see it, to see how it how it played out in his words, in his relationships, and in his actions. Right? And you can look at, you know, dice up his his life in a, in a bunch of different ways. But for me, like, even just looking at the preceding verses in, in chapter six, like, he, he spent time teaching. He spent time with the relationships that matter. He, he spent time, his actions tending to the, to the needs around him. And, and he was consistent in diligence. He was, he was habitually adding value in his words, in his relationships, and his actions. And for me, thinking about diligence, it's a lot I think better to think about diligence in, uh, in our behaviors, in our habits, with our words, relationships, and actions, rather than the place necessarily that those things get lived out. Because when we think about diligence, we think about showing up to work um, on time, and that's important. But I really think where we are doesn't matter as much as who we are in the midst of wherever we are. Where we are doesn't matter as much as who we are in the midst of wherever we are. Our oldest daughter um, just recently chose the college she's going to, and uh, and I see like in her and her and her friends like this idea of like I need to choose the very best college. Like it's, there's so much pressure around that decision, and I was talking about it with uh, with, with uh, I don't know another adult at, at one point. I was like honestly, I was like I don't really care where she goes to college. It's not like I know she's bright and she's going to end up at a college that's good, but like what for me what matters so much more 
is the person that we send to college. What it looks like for her to be consistent in her words and her relationships and her actions. And where that gets played out, whether it's Seminole State you know, College, which previously was Seminole Community College, which is where I spent my first two years, or, or Harvard or wherever else, like who we are in the places we are is what matters. That's where diligence gets played out. I told you at the beginning of the, um, uh, or uh, 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 on Tuesday of this week, we had the personal holiness day, the silent retreat, the kind of Sabbath for our staff to consider, uh, to consider what, um, what it looks like for us to pursue personal holiness. And for me, like the, the activity in that that's so important is looking at all arenas of our life. And what does it look like for my words, my relationships, my actions to be consistent with who God wants me to be in each of those arenas? Not how am I doing well here to make up for doing poorly here, but how am I inviting God to be transformative in my words, in my actions, in my relationships, and my actions in each of those arenas of life? I normally am pretty uh, verbose in that planning process as I sit there and like I, I write a bunch of stuff about mission statements and this, this, and this. Uh, but, but this year I decided to follow the example of Jessica Meyer, who's my uh, assistant. I've been working with her for, for a few years now. And she, every year, has, has a theme word, a word uh, that is going to be the kind of defining word for her over the course of the year. And as I looked at areas in my life where I, where I was being less diligent, in areas of my life where I was being more diligent in order to make them up, I was like, what I want people to see when they look at my life is I want them to see something that's congruous, something that, that, that all parts of my life are in agreement, in agreement with each other, are harmonious, that they're telling the same story. I mean, Jesus did that better than anyone else, right? Every part of his life took, like, where, where his life took him, where his words, his relationships, his actions took him, it mattered. Not so much where he was, not so much where I am, the specific environments, but what we are when we get there. Friends in 33, I think this is especially important for you to remember. Because there's very low expectation when you're in an environment that says, like, mattering is on hold for a while. And I want you to know that you can be just as diligent just as diligent in your words, in your relationships, in your actions, where you are now. And I know you have hopes for, for the future and plans for when you get out, and, and, it, and it's easy to get so focused on that, but I've also seen what happens from you when you're intentional in using your, 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 your words and your relationships and your actions to, to reflect the character of Christ in the place that you are. I'm proud to know you in that. I've been learning from your example. But we run into a problem. As we think about diligence with Jesus as our example, about, about him as the perfect closed system that, that needed nothing and wasted nothing, we're quickly reminded that we're not Jesus. I'm quickly reminded that I'm not Jesus. It's like you know, maybe how James would have felt uh, with, with, with Jesus as his brother. And, you know, people are like, why can't you be more like Jesus? And he's like, because he's Jesus, right? Like, that's, like, Jesus is our example. That's fine, but I'm not going to measure up. Like, every time I measure up to him as my example, it shows a beautiful picture of what I ought to be, but it reminds me that I'm not there yet. Jesus had the entire world to save, and I can barely make it through a day without disappointing myself or others. We need, we waste, we fail. If 
we're really honest, there are times where we wonder what value could we possibly add? What do I have to offer the world? Is giving into those questions and those fears and not finding the right answer that leads to either the opposite of diligence, which is sloth, or the other half of the diligence coin, right? If, if sloth, if, the, if, the, if the what we were made for um, in, in, in response to sloth was, was rest, was Sabbath, was, 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 was resting in who we are in Christ, um, and, and diligence is the good thing, what's the negative thing? If diligence is habitually adding value, what's the, what's the other side of the coin? What's, what is that the antidote to? I think it's in a persistence, an impulse to prove our value. If diligence is habitually adding value, the other side of it, the thing, the, the thing that, that, that robs us uh, of that, of that of that desire that we were created for is the persistence, the compulsion, the impulse to prove our value. Because not only, if we're honest, do we, do we not measure up to Jesus as the standard, but we very often don't measure up to ourselves as the standard. We look at what we thought we could get done and we look how we failed and, and what we wanna do is either give up or double down on proving that we matter. And when we do that, when we give up trying to add value to the world and just grasp for, for what recognition and value we can gain for ourselves, we settle for less, lesser visions. It either kills us or makes us settle for something less. We either give up or we give ourselves fully to, to, to selfish interests in that. Now the good news, and there's really good news in this, Jesus knows we're not him. Jesus knows we're not him. Earlier in that same text, in John chapter 6, Jesus addresses uh, this reality in, in, in just the most beautiful way. He's... Um, you know, he, he's again, again, the crowds are following him, and they're, and they're wanting to, like... Uh, uh, get him to put on a show for them, and they're wanting, they're wanting him to do miracles for them, and all this stuff. And you know, Jesus shut them down uh, and, and said, "My job, what I'm about, is to do the will of the Father. That's what my job is." But just before that, in verse 28, he tells us what our job is. All these people are following him. All these people are wanting the secret of life uh, from him. And he says in verse 28, "Then they asked him, What must we do?'" to do the work that God requires, right? That's a good question. What does God require of us? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now think about that. When we settle for, for, for the other side of diligence, the, the compulsion, the impulse to prove our value, we wear ourselves out. And Jesus says, that's not your job. Your job isn't to prove your worth. Your job is to believe. To believe in the one that the Father sent. It is his work. 
It is his diligence. It is him being the perfect closed system that, that needed nothing and, and, and wasted nothing and gave everything. It is his work that, that gives us value. What would that mean in our lives if we believed that? How would your words and your relationships and your actions look differently? Like, what would it look like if we didn't have to prove to the world or to, to, to our family or to ourselves that we were worth it? What if we really believed in the one sent to give his life so that we could live for eternity with the Father? Because that's what he says later. Jesus says later, he's like, the will of the Father is this, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I'll raise them up on the last day. Can I really believe that I'm that valued? That Jesus, that God came down and lived his entire life perfectly, lived the life that I should have lived so that I can be in relationship with him. Am I really cared for that much? At the end of the offsite or the the the, the staff retreat day, you know, we we had this long period of silence, and I was really like in, enjoying and appreciating the silence. And it was getting near lunchtime, and I was seated kind of near where where the lunch hall was, and so there's a bit of noise uh, and commotion that was starting to come uh, from there. And so I decided to go. Uh, to the other side of the pond. And you'll see in this picture, um, this, is, this is the other side of the pond. And so far uh, uh, on the one side is all the compound and the chapel and the, and the buildings and all of that. And there's a trail that goes around the pond. And I, and I went and uh, finished my time of silence uh, in, in proximity to the cross here. And, uh, uh, and I was sitting there and, I was, and I, was, uh, I was trying to listen to God, but I was kind of getting caught up in, in, in thinking about the message this week and all that. And just thinking about like, my, you know, how I fall short uh, in my pursuit of personal holiness and how I wish at times my steps would take me somewhere else. But like I find myself failing and, and, and I sat there and I just and I thought about what does it mean for me? That Jesus came and he gave himself fully to the will of the Father so that I could have life. What did it take for him to do that? And around the lake, there's this, uh, the, there's the, the, the pathway around the lake um, kind of highlights the 14, what's uh, classically called um, the Stations of the Cross or the Way of the Cross. And it's artistic renderings of, uh, of, of what happened to Jesus between when he was condemned for our sin um, and, when he was, and when he was crucified and when he was buried. And the, and, and the pictures themselves, uh, like the rest of the compound, are a bit dated and, and, and not super realistic, so I've never paid much attention to them. But as I was sitting there and thinking about, like, our steps in life take us someplace. And Jesus, his steps in his life took him someplace. And where they took him was through the pain and shame and humiliation and brokenness and, and, and crucifixion that was necessary so that we could have life. I'm that valued. You are that valued. We can only add value to the extent that we, are recognize, that we recognize we are valued. Otherwise, we just get stuck trying to prove our own worth. But if I dare, if I dare to recognize that, that, that Jesus is who he said he is, and therefore I matter as much as he says I matter, that changes my life. 
that should change your life. That should change what, what diligence and work looks like in our life because no longer is it about grasping for meaning. It is about living in the meaning that has been assigned to us by our creator. My job is to believe. And it takes just as much diligence to believe as it does anything else because again and again and again, the world tells me that I need to prove myself. But when I consistently remember and recognize what Jesus has done for me, when I dare to believe that because he did what he did, I am valued. It changes my life. It changes my perspective. It's no longer about offering to God the thing that, that, that I think he needs from me, but receiving from God the value he has already placed upon me. And there's no point in my life where I live with more vision, with more fulfillment, with more focus than when I live recognizing that my value comes from Christ. Every other time I settle for a lesser vision. Like when we talk about, when we talk about having both the, the, the rest and the vision to, 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 live, to live life and to live a, a fulfilled life, like that vision doesn't come from my own willpower. That vision is fueled by the value that I have in Christ. So my encouragement as we close our time together is to not get busy getting busy, but to take time and to reflect on our one job. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. When we believe that, it changes everything. When we believe that, we recognize we are unbelievably valuable. And only then can we truly add value to the world around us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you. It's one of the scariest and most humbling things to recognize that the steps you took in life took you to pain and suffering so that we could have life in its fullness. We can do good in the world because of the good that you have done for us, and we are grateful for that. Give us the courage to do that. Give us the courage to diligently do our one job, to believe in you so that all of the activities of our life, reflected in our, in our actions, in our relationships, in our words, all of the things that we do will, be, will, will, will give value to the world because you have said so not because we have exhausted ourselves trying to prove it. Let us remember the cross because that is where we find hope. Pray this all in your holy and precious name. Amen. We're going to close our service by taking communion together. Communion is the remembrance of Jesus on the night he was betrayed before he goes to the cross, before he lays his life down for our sake. He sits with his friends and he has a meal. And he takes the bread of that meal and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, it's broken for you. And then after the meal, he takes a cup and he says, this is my blood shed for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He's inviting us to be in a habit of remembering how valuable we are, valuable enough for him to show up and lay his very life down for. Here at Summit, we believe that this is God's table, not Summit's table. If you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and the restoration of your life, even if it's in this very moment, for the very first time, you're absolutely welcome here. 
And what will happen is the band will begin to play. It will be a moment to reflect. Oftentimes, reflection and repentance have, have coincided with communion throughout the history of the church. And so take that time as you would like. Reflect on where you are. Reflect uh, on those moments that maybe you haven't seen yourself as valuable. Maybe you've pursued something else other than believing in Him. And if you uh, need to ask forgiveness for that, our God says He's quick to forgive. But take that time to reflect, and then as you're ready, you can come forward. No one will dismiss you. Just whenever you're ready, come forward. Uh, there's a gluten-free option on the far right side, uh, my far right side, your far left side, if that's helpful to you. But you'll take a piece of bread, and someone will say, the body of Christ broken for you. They'll say that because it's true for you. And you'll take that bread, and you'll dip it in the cup of wine or juice, which is clearly marked. And you'll eat the bread, and they'll say, the blood of Christ shed for you. They'll say that because it's true for you, because you are loved that much. So take a moment to reflect, and as you're ready, come share communion with us.